0: This is the Apocalypse Theater Podcast, with Benjamin Allen. I don't think it's possible to look up to the stars and believe we're alone. There's no question that life exists. Should the conditions for life exist, then life will exist. But what if all of humankind's chances of survival lay within the hands of a lazy, unmotivated, and altogether bored generation of human beings? Episode 20 Manifest Zeta 1. That kid has been playing MF Zeta all day, Patrick said, pointing at the kid in the corner of the Zeta Lounge who had been there when Patrick was there in the morning, and he was there now after he had finished with church and come back. His name is Charlie Parker, said Patrick's friend. Kid comes in here and plays for six hours in the evening every night after school. Owner used to kick him out before they got more machines. The Zeta Lounge used to just be the cafe lounge eight months prior. And then Gregory Yarmouth finally created the first game to truly utilize the VR headset system. Most critics deduced that it was because the entirety of the game took place within the confines of a fighter ship constantly flying toward the alien mothership far in the distance. That way, people didn't make fools of themselves tripping over the coffee table in the living room while wearing the headset over their eyes. The player shot down alien ships that swooped from the heavens to defend their home planet. You were thrown directly into the action from the very outset of the game there's a countdown, and then it's showtime. The trickiest part? You can't stop. You can stop at a refuel station, but one might only show up once every hour. Stopping also messes with the player's potential time bonus. To say that the game was addicting was an understatement. The entire country had gotten Zeta fever, which was a welcome distraction to any young person who was living with the many political issues that everyone was perpetually bombarded with morning, afternoon, and night. Coffee shops began stocking the licensed VR headsets and chairs for the players to sit in as if they were in the pilot's chair of the spaceship. They could purchase a coffee that synced with the actual game itself so you would look like you were drinking from the cup next to you while you shot down aliens, gathered power-ups, and executed Zeta Power. When you gathered enough Zeta Exhaust, or Zed, and filled your Zeta Meter, the pilot could utilize Zeta Power and launch hastily toward the mother ship, enhancing one's score while simultaneously becoming invulnerable to all surging bad guys. The game was intentionally not converted over to the platform consoles. It was exclusive to a public cafe or arcade setting. The game had made Gregory Yarmouth and his flagship company, Y Games, considerably wealthy. Yarmouth claimed that even though you could play Mobius or Cry of Honor with your buddies online, there was something about the old-school arcades that attracted a flavor of people and allowed them to socialize. That element was missing with console bedroom gaming. Prior to MFZ, while some people did own a VR headset, VR hadn't caught fire the way mobile and console gaming naturally took over the market with the growth of the internet. There also weren't that many games that were catering to VR quite yet. Doubling down on that rare anonymity of the market and the general intrigue most people had toward VR, while simultaneously balking at the $300 price tag, is what allowed Y Games to drop MFZeta and take the world by storm. They would provide the equipment so the player need only create the account, pay the $15 monthly subscription fee, and make the time to play. The beautiful part? Why games had also resurrected some element of the arcade atmosphere that a lack thereof had made modern-day internet gaming bland and repetitive. Nine months after the game's release, and after multitudes of internet cafes and coffee shops became Zeta Cafes, Gregory had come out and challenged every player to an ultimate showdown on the game's anniversary a contest for every single person plugged into the Y Game servers. His Twitter post announcing the contest had been retweeted 16 million times within the first 24 hours. It was featured on every news outlet, screenshotted and blasted across every social media site, and became a challenge for every gamer worth their salt in the world, both past and present. Old programmers and champions from old-school Atari, Nintendo, and Sega contests were coming out of the woodwork, teaching themselves how to kick back and use the dual handset controllers to kill aliens while drinking a pumpkin spice latte. They were half-price at Suncash coffee shops for anyone looking to stay longer than two hours. The pumpkin spice latte itself had become a company requirement to sell year-round despite pushback from corporate. That was after Y Games signed an exclusive contract with Suncash to turn a third of the companies into Suncash Zeta Cafes. They were more sleek, with darker lighting and more seats for gamers where the regular Suncash locations would remain for their original customer base and building facade. Work hours had changed across the country to accommodate for the sometimes two or three hours that employees would be out for lunch. One could typically expect retail stores to be closed from 11 in the morning to 2 in the afternoon daily. Sundays, days usually reserved for religious observations, became holy days for other reasons pure, free day and night hours to dedicate to blasting aliens out of the sky. People were so hooked on the game that they patched it to include a warning after six hours of gameplay. The person's account would be flagged, and the pilot of the ship would automatically fly toward the nearest refueling station where they would park, and the player couldn't log back in for an hour at first. People complained so intensely that they reduced it to a 20-minute requirement. Gregory had told people on multiple talk shows and interviews that he'd eliminate the wait time entirely if not for his concern for the general health of his gamers. After a boy in Sweden died after staying up all night and day for three consecutive days, the wait time requirement was something the game couldn't be without. Patrick and his friend left the cafe, but Charlie Parker remained. He would remain there until the game kicked him out again. After that, he would go home and read online about how to play more skillfully. When the game did finally force him to a refuel station and boot him from the server, Charlie pulled the headset from his eyes and sat up. He gave the rim of the goggles its courtesy wipe and threw away the nearly empty styrofoam coffee cup next to his seat. One of the biggest problems players had was taking time to pee, but that's why the refueling stations were there. Playing for six hours without stopping was still taxing on the bladder. He hobbled to the restroom, his kidneys pressing painfully inside. He was at the standing urinal when the manager of the shop came in and started going in the urinal next to him. It was awkward, and Charlie probably would have had more trouble going if he wasn't already halfway finished. Seen you in here a number of times, kid, the guy said. He was maybe 26 years old, but still had a face full of pimples. I hate MF Zeta, man, he shook his head. I love it, Charlie said. I know you do. I've seen your scores. Nobody else is even close. The manager finished and zipped up his pants. Listen, I have been told that there's going to be a series of preliminary matches before the big one. It's kind of a Zeta Lounge exclusive. Normally, I'd roll my eyes and keep doing my job, but you seem like just the person they told me to look out for. If you've got nothing but time on Sunday, you might come by and see if they'll let you join. Oh, and make sure you don't drink any coffee a few hours before. They said they're removing the six-hour cap on these games. It's going to be some bonus points thing. Instead, it's just going to be one long ten-hour competition. Think you'd be down? Definitely. I'll be here Sunday anyway, Charlie answered. Cool. I mean, maybe. I don't even know anymore. The guy washed his hands and left Charlie the card for the event on the sink. Charlie picked up the card and put it in his pocket before heading home. His mother was watching television as usual. His father had left them when Charlie was six years old. It's hard to say he actually left them when Charlie's mom wouldn't let him come back after she found out what kind of tips he'd been giving Charlie's babysitter. She was barely 18 years old, and Charlie's father had been 42. It was Charlie and his mother alone against the world from there. She was a relaxed parent with few rules other than that he'd get C's in school and plan on going to college. If he couldn't go to college, then he'd have to get a job. She told him that at least once a week, and then MF Zeta took over his life. Meeting the C's requirement had become a difficult task when he spent all his free time bridging the distance between Earth and the mothership. Had anyone actually reached the mothership? Sure, Charlie had a few times. He didn't last very long. The intensity of the enemy was too high around and inside the mothership and it was easy to die. You can't stop moving because the game won't let you so you have to avoid every obstacle and try not to get shot out of the air by massive swarms of alien attackers. With thousands of Zaytans trained upon you, surviving for long is nearly impossible. Getting there takes at least 40 hours of gameplay on its own. Some people had made it to the center core, and had even live-streamed themselves reaching Mother, the Satan Queen, but no one had defeated her. Most people were impressed if a person could just reach outside the mothership. Figuring out how to defeat Mother was something gamers across the world could only dream of being the first to do. He finished his homework as quickly as he could so he could watch some of his favorite streamers attempt to break the sound barrier and get to the mothership as quickly as possible. Charlie fell asleep with his phone lying next to him as he dreamed in high speed, shooting down aliens as fast as they could enter his field of vision. He didn't hate that he dreamed like this. He was in heaven as the dream felt more real than the simulation on the headset. He could move fluidly and never make a mistake in his dreams. The scores he got in his sleep were off the charts. The only problem was how quickly and painfully the morning hit him. It would feel as though he hadn't slept at all because his mind was on constant high alert. It was one of the increasingly numerous side effects most excessive gamers experienced, and one that Y Games had begun to offer rehabilitation classes to counter. Talking heads on both ends of the political spectrum called Zeta a scourge on humanity, tapping into the most powerfully addictive stimuli in the brain, causing high amounts of dopamine bursts and mixing them with high-paced payouts that were on par to the reward triggers that gamblers with serious gambling addictions were known to chase. No one knew how deep the rabbit hole went, but Charlie Parker had in his pocket the first step toward his inevitable enlightenment on the subject. Charlie didn't know that this game had been made for a reason. Charlie didn't know that Gregory Yarmouth was given a blank check from the government to design, at whatever cost, a game so addicting and fun that people would hate putting it down, and yet one that could still track the reflexes and skills and scores of the gamers. Charlie didn't know that all of this was far more serious than just a stupid addicting game. 2. Charlie arrived at the Zeta Lounge early on Sunday. It was a weird day because while his mother normally didn't care what he did, that overcast morning in particular she had fussed at him about spending too much time gaming and not enough time on his homework. Maybe if you spent more time on class and less time giving that game company your subscription money, you'd be able to get into college and make your own games. Isn't that what you always wanted? Charlie was a boy of few words and didn't respond when spoken to frequently enough that it had become an assumed social handicap for him. His mother had tried to have him see a psychiatrist, but the psychiatrist only deduced that it wasn't a lack of ability to communicate, but a lack of interest. He could communicate just fine when pressed, and would even make a really great public speaker if Charlie could just exert himself, but it was easier to be quiet. Being quiet made people overlook him, ignore him, leave him to his own devices, which was all he ever wanted. He didn't know that people automatically assumed that he was irresponsible or incompetent for remaining silent when addressed, and wouldn't have cared if he did know. It was the way he interacted with the world. Why reciprocate? Why be involved? Was there anything really to gain? You do your schooling, go to work, sell insurance for a living, or program the code to allow the insurance agents to sell the insurance. If he could do that in his life without having to open his mouth for the majority of the time, he would do it. He had done his chores and homework to satisfy his mother's pressing concerns, ate breakfast, and then skipped out while she was at the grocery store by 8 in the morning. The Zeta Lounge was hopping. Some kids were in the game, but almost everyone was waiting until 9 for the preliminary event to begin. There were three saved games one could have, but for the occasional competition an additional entry slot appeared. However, if one were to start playing before the competition, the game would still perverse their course to the refueling station six hours after playing, even if they stopped their saved game and started the competition. Some people called it a bug, others figured it was so that a person couldn't play for four hours prior to the competition, and then end up sitting there for ten more hours without having to stop for fourteen in the end. While none of the anxious, antisocial gamers standing around would admit it, the sense of anticipation would make the competition all the more exciting and fun. The crowd was enormous. It was a good thing Charlie arrived early. Once the line wrapped the cafe building twice, none of the traveling passers-by bothered parking. They just revved their engines and hurried to the next cafe with hopes of finding fewer people before the competition could begin. Charlie had thought this event was supposed to be on the down low, but words travel fast. By 8:55, it was clear that fewer MFZ junkies didn't know about it than did. The sun broke through the morning clouds as the humidity dissipated. Right at nine, the doors opened and people began finding their seats. The whole place had been cleaned. The floors no longer had gum and coffee stains. The seats had been freshly wiped and sanitized, and the windows were spotless. Charlie got a spot in the back corner where it was darker than the rest of the cafe. He picked up the controllers that had been replaced the night before with brand new ones. The thumbsticks on each controller were solid and unworn from months of gaming. One of the biggest early complaints about having to use a public controller was that the thumbsticks often squeaked or became wobbly with a few months of constant use. Some people had modded the systems to allow custom controllers, but when certain influencers started dominating, Y Games had updated their terms of service to include using industry standard brand controllers to keep the playing field even. The way they pulled that off was by customizing each Y Games controller with a transponder that synced up with the headset, kind of like a car key that's exclusively programmed to its car. That way, no one could use the headset without its synchronized controller. It seemed like a lot of thought for a simple video game where the player flew toward a giant alien mothership for hours and hours, but it had been subsidized by the government. Y Games also required the user's driver's license, permit, or passport in order to open an account. It was because Y Games' previous online console games had been overwhelmed with bots, scammers, and fishers. This was a big roadblock for many, but once its popularity had been confirmed and Y games reiterated that they wanted players, not scammers, young adults were able to justify the prerequisite to play. In order to buy alcohol, drive a car, or vote, one had to have a driver's license. It wasn't that difficult a barrier to a road by promising months of fun on the other side. But anyone with any wisdom in the technological age knew that there was a deeper purpose to requiring such detailed personal information just to create an account for an addicting and popular game it was all so well-engineered. Charlie put on the VR headset that was already powered up. The first generation of Y-Games headsets had been rough around the eyes, but the second generation was released a month prior. This had the much-needed blue light filter in addition to some spatial engineering that made sitting for six hours in VR no different than sitting in your car for the same length of time. The second generation was all about comfort and easing the player into the VR world seamlessly. The whole headset weighed half a pound. The visual display had been upgraded to improve overall performance and fidelity and could be adjusted as needed for near far-sighted individuals with ten gigs of RAM, twice the pixel display from the first generation for a whopping twenty one twelve by twenty two hundred resolution, and a powerful new Xcom dragonfly processor. The Y games generation Two headset was one of the most advanced pieces of VR hardware available. Charlie was able to plug in his wired noise cancelling headphones to the headset. He had mowed lawns all summer for not only his monthly subscription fees, but also so that he could purchase a good set of headphones to clear the irritating clicking of controllers, rustling of clothing, and the occasional audible coffee order from the counter. It was possible to connect a set of Bluetooth headphones to the headset from the settings, but there was almost always nasty clipping, crackling, and a slight delay that was off-putting for the overall submersion of the experience. The headset was one of the only pieces of equipment the player was expected to provide since no one wanted to use a pair of grimy old public earpieces, even if they had been cleaned. For the occasional individual who didn't bring their audio device, every Y Games-approved cafe was stocked with sets of packaged, wired, and ear one trip disposable headphones. Everyone else in the Zeta lounge plugged in their headphones and slipped them over their ears. The first thing Charlie saw was the login screen for his Y Games account. He signed in using his driving permit number. Charlie had taken driver's ed six months earlier, not so he could drive his mom's SUV, but so he could make a Y Games account. Millions of fellow 15- and 16-year-old gamers did the same. Once he pressed enter, a uniformed commanding officer appeared in front of him. It was Executive Commander Moore. The actor's name was Silas Sims. He was huge on the wrestling scene in the 90s and 2000s, but after breaking into his 40s, he started doing more acting in cheesy B-movies, usually masculine Navy SEAL or commando roles. He'd left the scene for about 10 years, but had been called into action as the spokesman for Manifest Zeta. Now in his mid-60s, Sims was the perfect lead XO for your mission as the pilot of the Zeta Wing Speeder. "'Good to see you again, Star Marshal Parker,' he said smoothly. "'You ready for a date with Destiny?' Press Start floated across the screen under the XO's meaty-crossed arms. When Charlie pressed Start, his three games were floating to Moore's right, but there was now a fourth game that hadn't been initiated with a white border around it. Juan gets so used to seeing the usual pattern that when a new option is available, a feeling of anticipation overtakes the senses. Charlie eagerly pressed the fourth option. Moore uncrossed his arms, and a second person joined his side. Taken aback, Charlie saw the up-and-coming actress Billy Molly Black wearing a Master Sergeant's uniform that made her look hot as hell. Her dark brown hair had been done in a tight tower over her head, cocking his brow with a smirk. Charlie was pleased to outrank her for whatever it was worth. It looks like we've been called into action, Star Marshal Parker, she said. We need your piloting skills to take down that mother ship. Are you ready, Charlie hit yes. The two remained on the screen as the server clock counted down to the competition's initiation. Considering the game took hours and this game would likely take ten, Charlie found himself feeling impatient waiting the eight minutes in peace and quiet for the competition to get started. At least he was able to ogle at Billy Molly Black in uniform as she stood next to Moore with her arms crossed coolly. They knew their target audience well. Although aside from Moore and yourself, there were no other NPC or players that were part of the original Manifest Zeta. Keeping MF Zeta simple was the goal. It was supposed to be like an arcade game where the moment you drop your quarter in, the game begins. The appearance of an additional character made Charlie wonder what other changes might be in store for the competition specifically. He'd need to be on his A-game, and be ready for the unexpected. He ordered a small black coffee that would be his lifeline for the next ten hours. He wouldn't drink it all at once, and without milk or cream it wouldn't sour over the course of the day. A little sip every hour is all he would need. He had eaten two waffles, three eggs, buttered toast, and two strips of bacon that morning. His belt was tight on his khaki shorts, but he would burn through that before lunch. If not for the competition, he might make time to eat a bagel from the counter, but he had no intention of eating until later that evening. He bit his lip as the timer hit thirty seconds and began the slow crawl to zero. Ready, Star Marshal, said Commander Moore. The time is now. Good luck, Master Sergeant Black squinted at him with a smirk and then the two faded into the gray background. Charlie's character sat back in the pilot's seat as the frame and dashboard of his ship enclosed him. His dopamine rush began as the mothership appeared between the passing clouds at the end of his long journey amidst a sky that looked identical to the sky from his location at the Zeta Lounge. Charlie heard the sound of his ship firing up. The treetops on his right and left slowly backed out of his peripheral vision. Then the action began. The first Zeta fighter, a basic flying saucer UFO, screamed into view. Charlie banked out of the way of its dual laser beams, clicking the trigger on his own just as his sights dragged over the UFO's trajectory. The spray of fire caught the vessel, striking the UFO's anti-gravity engine, causing it to explode in a puff of green gas that Charlie flew through. His Z-meter swam up to 3% on the right side of the ship's windshield. Six more Zetans screeched as black-gray slits against the clouds and blue sky beyond. His eyes had been trained from months of practice to see those beginning lines. If he didn't defeat them, they would arrive in tenish seconds and dog him from behind until he outmaneuvered and took them down. Usually, Zaytans didn't get past the players with skill, at least not until they got to the thermosphere. Everything got significantly harder once the player passed the moon. Beyond Mars, the game separated the boys from the men. The Zeta mother ship was constantly receding. After 50-ish hours of gameplay on one game, the player would reach the mother ship between Jupiter or Neptune, assuming they didn't die. The whole game was hardcore mode because if you lose once, you're back on the ground, starting your flight all over again. Once you reached the mother ship, however, the main perspective camera changed as the player's ship leveled out with the mother ship to search for an entrance. For the first hour, Charlie blasted his way through the light resistance with ease, along with everyone else. The second hour, as he made his way past the moon, Charlie hit the boost button to pass through the clouds of hundreds of Zatans. He circled around them, depleting their numbers as he evaded their shots. An alien beam knocked his ship's health down to 98%. It was the first time he'd been hit, and it pissed him off because he should have been faster to avoid damage. Getting hit this early was BS. With a vendetta, Charlie tapped his full Zed meter, wiped out the last of the platoon of Zetans, then surged through at least a thousand more, exhausting his bonus power. Without the use of Zed, it might take a player 45 minutes to clear a thousand Zetans because they'll keep dogging from behind if not eliminated. The competition was clearly a shorter version of the actual game. A regular game would take five times as long, so the mothership grew noticeably larger as Charlie broke his sixth hour and passed Mars. Oftentimes, the player had to reach all the way to the outer exoplanets and small moons, out into interstellar space to try their hand at getting inside the mothership. Charlie had only ever been inside the mothership three or four times, and it was pure hell within. It was like trying to navigate through a beehive as every bee hurries to purge you from their home. Usually, they succeed. Charlie recalled the intensity of the resistance within the mothership and thought this measly two dozen satans he was currently rounding up like sheep so he could dwindle their numbers down was a piece of cake. There was something odd about the resistance once he was able to get within reasonable distance to the mothership. Charlie noticed they weren't as predictable as they were in a normal game. They grouped together and attacked in an assault formation that put Charlie on pure defense. It wasn't easy to take down large groups anymore. The enemy had been made competent and methodical. It became extremely irritating to Charlie as his ship dropped down to 94%. Charlie wouldn't know it, but outside the VR headset, his face winced and stretched with every maneuver that allowed him to descend upon and vanquish his foes. The normal game had taught him well. He avoided most of the Zaytan attacks while acclimating to their improved tactics. Eight hours had passed like a mere hour and a half to Charlie. He had blown through nine Zed boosts. He didn't know how they had changed the score to meet the competition standards, but he had more than doubled his normal high score already. It didn't make the competition or this game in particular seem more special. The objective, while harder from the improved Zayton resistance, wasn't any different than the normal objective. After a while, Charlie just ignored the huge number at the top right since it didn't look like what he was used to, and almost everyone else probably had similar scores in the high digits. Nine and a half hours in, on the far side of Neptune, coffee at the bottom quarter of the cup, Charlie reached the mother ship. The ship's inner perspective did its signature horizontal leveling out as it kept the focal point on the far entrance to the mother ship. The Zetans were like angry hornets, flooding from the walls of the vast, planet-sized vessel. Charlie took his time and cleaned house. He took them down and maxed out a Z-meter for the last time. He didn't know what was going to happen, but the competition was nearing its end. With two minutes to spare, Charlie found the entrance to the mothership and turned inside. Slapping the Z meter, the ship powered through the tens of thousands of Zatans that could do nothing but die upon his invulnerability. His Zed power lasted a full minute before depleting. There was a countdown at the upper left. Thirty seconds. Without any Zed, and being thrown into impossible mode within the mother ship, Charlie watched his ship's life percent tick and ding down to forty-five percent. There was too much fire from too many directions. 15 seconds remaining, 39%, 35%, 24%, 18%, 5 seconds, 11%, 4%. The game faded to black. He didn't die. He probably would have died in another two seconds, but he very clearly did not see his ship explode around him. Eyes darting back and forth as the competition had officially ended, a score screen popped up. It just showed his score blinking. 340 trillion points. Under it, there was a small note. Thank you for playing, Star Marshal Parker. Your score will be calculated and announced with the other high scores in 24 hours. Please take a rest. Charlie shrugged, logged out, and slowly pulled off his headset. A number of weird things greeted him upon pulling off his headphones. First, there was not a single person at any of the VR seats in the Zeta Lounge. The Zeta Lounge itself, usually full of both patrons and staff, only had the manager that had given him his invitation several days earlier, and two men in suits waiting patiently by the counter. Charlie could see that it was raining outside now from the darkness beyond the front door. He slowly got up and knew something wasn't right. Why were there no other players? He couldn't have been the only one who had made it to the end, could he? Even if he was, account holders need only wait 20 minutes before jumping back in, and normally they would. He packed up his headphones and was making his way out when the two men addressed him. Star Marshal Parker, one said as Charlie went for his smartphone in his pocket. I wouldn't check the news if I were you. Charlie looked left and right. Why? He glanced at the Zeta Lounge manager who looked like he had just witnessed a tragedy unfold. What's going on? There was an attack, Charlie, spoke the other suit next to the first guy. Phoenix, Arizona is nothing. St. Petersburg, Zurich, all wiped off the map. ''What?'' Charlie gaped at them. ''This is a joke, right?'' ''We need you to come with us, Charlie,'' the first man said. ''I'm not going with you. I don't even know who you are,'' Charlie said. ''You don't have a choice, son,'' the second man sighed. ''This is America. I do have a choice. I'll call my mom right now,'' Charlie said. ''Your mom is waiting in the back of our SUV. She was too distraught to come inside.'' Charlie looked to the Zeta Lounge manager who shrugged, still looking depressed. ''Come on.'' One of the suits put a hand on Charlie's back. There's so much to discuss that I think it would be best if we got started. Charlie, without any other course of action, followed the men to the SUV where, in the back seat of the vehicle, Charlie's mother was waiting for him. A stack of wadded tissues were next to her as she continued sobbing into each new one from a fresh tissue box on her lap. Sorry for the cloak and dagger approach, but it's very important that we get you to Houston as soon as possible, one of the suits spoke. Everything will make sense soon. three. Even stranger than the Zeta Lounge being empty, the freeways were almost completely barren as well. Any car that was out was pulled over and sent back home. There weren't any planes in the sky. It was so eerie to see a sudden major curfew in place within such a short period of time. They weren't stopped by any police, and they didn't stop by his house to pick up any of his things. All he had was himself, his mother, and his phone and headphones. The suits took them to the DFW International Airport and weren't going to join on the flight that was booked for Houston. When Charlie and his mother stepped into the terminal, they joined with hundreds of thousands of other people. Some were accompanied by their parents, some by only their mother like Charlie, and some were totally alone. The only thing they all had in common was that they were all clearly gamers, and they were all under the age of 25. Flight 696 to Houston is boarding and will be departing in 30 minutes. Someone spoke over the loudspeaker. Charlie's mother gave him an envelope. That's you. I'm not allowed to go, she sniffed. They needed me to sign the release form, so here it is. Charlie took the envelope. Release form for what? What's happening? Oh, Charlie. She shook her head as people passed on their left and right, parents leaving and younger individuals going. There are no guarantees in life, except that everything changes. We got too comfortable thinking we would wake up in the same world day in and day out. Charlie stuffed the envelope in his pocket, frustrated at the congestion forming around them. I gotta go, Mom. Text me every day, she said as Charlie was practically ushered with the rest of the kids into the line for his flight. They didn't even do a security check. They just shoved everyone by the dozens into planes that took off only to be replaced by another in five minutes. The lack of any security at all whatsoever was just as insane as everything else that had happened after he had left the game. It was the third time Charlie had flown, but some kids had never flown before and it showed. A 13-year-old girl was on the verge of a mental breakdown as a little turbulence shook the cabin in mid-flight. She was wearing a black MFZ t-shirt, so Charlie couldn't understand why she was panicking over something she had been conditioned to handle. Eventually, he put on his noise-canceling headphones and listened to music on his phone. It felt like they were in the air for 45 minutes before they landed in Houston and were packed onto buses like sardines. Charlie couldn't even sit down as even the aisles were full of people. A few made natural friends, but everyone seemed too distraught or traumatized by the circumstances to leave their own personal comfort zone. Charlie did a double take and saw a guy sitting next to the window with a girl on his lap. The two were making out like it was the last day on Earth. No one seemed to care, or the PDA was such a mild irritation that it was dwarfed to a minor inconvenience. They traveled through a forest, along a highway, and then turned onto a government road, passing through an industrially fenced-off checkpoint. The buses drove through a field and entered an underground parking garage on the side of a cyclopean building structure. This was not NASA. Charlie had been there before, and this location was more like a military airbase. The buses drove all the way to the top floor of the parking garage and parked with a hydraulic hiss. Everyone disembarked, becoming a large crowd next to a wide set of sliding glass doors. At least twenty buses emptied young people from all over the state onto the stoop of the facility. A man in a navy blue uniform with space-gray trim on the collar, cuffs, and hems stepped out to greet them. "'Good afternoon, I'm Knight Lieutenant Davis,' the man introduced himself. Many people glanced at their fellows with worried looks upon their faces. Anyone with a shred of knowledge about rank knew there was no such thing as a Knight Lieutenant in any military division, but there was a Knight Lieutenant in MFZ. Earth has been attacked by an unknown malicious force. You've been conscripted into a top-secret branch of the military known as the EDF, the Erland Defense Force. Several people laughed. How could you not? This was the silliest thing many of them had ever heard. Davis was obviously prepared for this reaction and continued without breaking stride. This may seem funny to some in the beginning, but we've actually been around for the last 62 years. We've covertly pulled NEO objects out of danger zones that would have ended this planet prematurely, we've helped organize much of the space junk floating around the lower mesosphere, and we've even been in varying forms of communication with extraterrestrial beings. Like aliens? One boy raised his hand. Yes, aliens, smiled Davis. We're about to go through the dissertation of what you're being asked to do, and then we'll have dinner and it's lights out after that. We're not going home? One girl asked. The man shook his head. You've been drafted into the military, S.P. Samantha Stemmons. Charlie raised his hand before Davis could turn back toward the glass doors. Those guys called me Star Marshal Parker back at the lounge. Are we going by our literal rank from MFZ? Star Marshal Parker. Davis slowly walked toward Charlie with his hands tied behind his back. You got the fourth highest score in the competition. Congratulations. What? Charlie glared at him. Davis paced away from Charlie. How many of you like Manifest Zeta? He asked. Half of the crowd put their hands up. Everyone else assumed it was such a stupid question that it was like asking who liked anime at the local Comic-Con. We worked in conjunction with Y Games to help produce Manifest Zeta. We did it for a very good reason, and it's why you're all here now. Come, there's much to go over in the conference hall. The crowd of students filed into the vast corridors of the facility connected to the parking garage. The air within was cold and smelled like a hospital. They walked for what felt like two-thirds of a mile and then turned into a conference hall that looked like one of those big college auditoriums, only larger. There were already hundreds of students inside that had been situated in the cushioned seats at the far end of the assembly hall. It took at least ten minutes to get everyone inside and settled down. For whatever reason, there were a lot of kids crying. Charlie couldn't understand why, but different people have different upbringings. Many kids had separation anxiety when it came to their families, and many had just never been forced to be on their own like this. A woman in a lab coat stepped onto the stage at the head of the hall. She had blonde hair that was in a ponytail and wore thick black-rimmed glasses that rested on the end of her nose. She withdrew a clicker from her pocket and pointed it at a large screen behind her as she walked out of the way. Silent video footage of Phoenix, Arizona filled the screen. It was a hellscape. The whole city was a gigantic blast zone. There were no buildings left, just flaming debris and millions of dead. The woman hit the clicker again, and this time the footage was of St. Petersburg, Russia. It looked the same as Phoenix, more or less. Monroe, Zurich, Taichung City, Hangzhou, and at least half a dozen others. They had been literally glassed and eliminated from existence. The screen went white and the woman in the lab coat returned to the middle of the stage. My name is Dr. Kimberly Rose. It's no secret that we've been attacked, but by who? What is happening, and why have you been brought to this location? Before I answer these questions, I must explain who I am and what my job is. My PhD doesn't matter because I'm little better than a programmer, but I'm the one who developed the AI that allowed Y games to track your reflexes and manifest Zeta. You're here, and hundreds of thousands of other people just like you are assembled at this very moment in China, South Korea, Thailand, Canada. You're here because you are the fastest of the fastest, the sharpest of the sharpest, the clearest for the longest periods of time, the coolest under the worst situations, the smartest in the most impossible scenarios, the most inventive under pressure. You're the cream of the crop, the best and brightest that humanity has to offer. We have been attacked by an alien race. It wasn't just Phoenix, it wasn't just Russia, it wasn't just Thailand or China, it was us as a human race. We were attacked. Kimberly Rose paused as she surveyed the eyes of the audience. Let that sink in because we are officially no longer at odds with each other. Russia, as they have been in space for decades, is now our ally. North Korea, China, we are one race, responding as a single entity to a threat and assault upon our planet. I want you to think about all of these cities, she held up the clicker as the burning cities flashed upon the screen behind her in quick succession, next time you think about demonizing your fellow earthlings over stupid quarrels, economics, political differences. We can't afford it, and your prejudices will be punished by an independent tribunal of unbiased judges. Isn't this against our rights as Americans? One girl asked in the front row. If she were any further back, Kimberly probably couldn't have heard her. The question was, isn't this against our rights as Americans? The answer to that is as of six hours ago, our planet is at war. There might not be an America next week should this assault continue with the Zatans. I know, I know, it sounds like a joke. We've been joking that aliens came from the Zeta Reticuli region of space for years, but to every fiction there is a kernel of truth. There is a long history that you will be required to memorize over time, but your military education comes later, so we'll have to stick with the short history. It's the reason why we've accelerated our long-term process of selection for this project. Project Zeta began in 1985. There were many kinds of Zaten aircraft. Many had been found. Some had been excavated in the 1960s from various locations around the United States and the world. Some were still in pieces. They've been around for a long time, eons likely, and no one really knew what they were. A few of the parts were highly radioactive, so when groups of people happened upon them they would often hallucinate, see visions, and in some cases die over a period of weeks after coming into contact with certain parts of the aircraft. By 1992, we had assembled nine Zayton scout ships. Kimberly pressed the clicker to show a series of flying saucers side by side in a sort of underground hangar. Whoever had been mildly amused by this whole event suddenly became fully interested as a 90s quality VHS video of one of several scientists operating one of the vessels displayed upon the screen. The saucer they were operating flipped sideways and rocketed, bottom first, almost instantaneously away from the cameraman without upsetting the environment around it. A slightly more modern video showed the vehicle slowly spinning next to a large mountain range where 20 circular targets had been lined up. With a quick swish of the saucer's movement. All 20 of the targets were obliterated to dust. By 1998, we were able to not only operate the aircraft, but we were able to replicate the reactor's gravity field that allows the vessel to launch into space, shoot destructive beams, and even to observe certain events that have happened or will happen in time. In 2002, we developed the Hybrid Skyfighter, SF09, an earthen-made ship that could both utilize and generate the gravity field, and act as a basic fighter jet that is not unlike the SR-71 she hit the clicker to show an awesome triangular jet zipping through the atmosphere from several angles. Getting to the present, in January of 2021 this year, we created the Interstellar Fighter Pod, which operates very similarly to your ship in Manifest Zeta. That's not by accident. Getting young people familiar with the mechanics of this vehicle is why we commissioned Y Games to produce a VR-style video game that would allow us to subtly train our new team of fighter pilots. However, our progress has not gone unnoticed. The Zaitans have been watching us adapt to their technology. We received multiple messages over the last six months that have made it very clear that they want us to abandon this endeavor. Dozens of satellite images of oddly particular crop circles appeared on the screen from different parts of the world. They have been arranged on a board to form the word stop, seamlessly from the angles and points of the message. To the average farmer, it would seem like nothing more than vandalism. The competition, continued Kimberly, was the last straw. They not only knew that we were advancing our hold upon their technology, but that we were training our own race to grow teeth and fight back. Why would they attack now? Because we became ready overnight. During the competition, we sent out our first 150-man platoon. They were able to fly to Pluto and back within about 25 minutes. Sounds crazy, right? It takes almost five hours for light to reach Pluto. These are the vessels they piloted, and these are the vessels you'll be piloting starting tomorrow morning. There is little time and you'll likely be sent on your first mission within the next few days. Dr. Rose pressed the clicker and walked off the stage. Upon the screen behind her, perfectly modern video quality displayed a ship that was in the shape of a teardrop, the rounded part being the cockpit. The two points that narrowed to the front of the ship were nose to the ground. The ship was sleek, light gray, and round enough to deflect space debris. Charlie thought it looked like an upside-down egg at the shape it was resting. The video showed a pilot climb one of those airplane stairways they have on the tarmac at airport terminals. He pushed something on the underside, and a sort of hatch spiraled open at the bottom. The points of the ship lifted off the ground as if propelled by the two poles of a magnet, propping upright so the points and rounded end were horizontal in midair. There was no wind, no exhaust, no visible propulsion system. Within a fraction of a second, the vessel was gone, leaving a warbling waviness in the air for about five seconds. The video displayed from the cockpit as the pilot looked out through the narrow front of the ship. The moon passed like a tree on the side of the freeway at 80 miles per hour. The red planet of Mars swelled and became the size of the screen within about two minutes. The red, sandy terrain passed in a ridiculous blur as the fighter leveled out and circled past Olympus Mons before turning its sight back to Earth. The words, Welcome to the Future, appeared under the video as the ship bridged the distance between the two planets just as quickly as it had done the first time. Earth went from speck of blue light in space to marble to baseball to grapefruit to full vision of the cockpit in less than a minute. It was insane, and at least a hundred times faster than the ships in MFZ. Night Lieutenant Davis made his way onto the stage as the screen went white. There isn't time for Q&A, but all your questions will be answered. For now, we're going to get everyone organized into their platoons, fed, and off to sleep for a a 5am debriefing. If you'll file out through the door where you entered, you'll be taken to the cafeteria to find your platoon. It wasn't pure confusion, but a determined concern that seemed most common on every face. They filed out of the auditorium and into a vast cafeteria with a stage on one side. They met with an officer who told them which table to sit with that would be their platoon going forward. Charlie was assigned to table FF7. There were already a number of kids there, including one kid Charlie's age with a red hat on. He seemed genuinely friendly with everyone even though half of the table that had been organized so far sat on the opposite side of the table. Final Fantasy Seven. The kid pointed at Charlie. Sighing, Charlie nodded and sat in the middle, away from the camp of ten people on the far end and away from the kid with the red hat. It was too late though. The guy got up and joined the seat opposite Charlie. Hey, my name's Trevor. What's yours? Charlie. Charlie glanced down the table to see several people glaring daggers at him. Ignore those guys, Trevor waved. The grin on his face turned to a frown as an officer stood behind him with his hand outstretched. I already told you once, and now it's mine, the officer said. Come on, I just put it back on because I don't have anywhere else to put it, Trevor said, pulling off the red hat. Give it back to you before you go to your quarters, the officer said, taking the red hat from Trevor. Jesus, freedom of speech much? Trevor said after the officer was out of earshot. Charlie glanced down the table to see the other people looking smugly satisfied with this outcome. One of them was the girl who'd been making out with the boy on the bus. She gave Charlie a pursed grin of acknowledgement with a slight nod. "'So who'd you vote for?' asked Trevor. Charlie met Trevor's brown eyes. "'I think they want us to stop talking about that crap. That's why they took your hat, man.' "'Yeah, you probably voted for Morpheus like the rest of the country. I don't blame you,' said Trevor." We're just introduced to alien technology and all you can talk about is last year's politics. I'm only 16 years old, Charlie said. Me too, Trevor said as the table filled in with people. A few minutes later, and Trevor was engaged with three others while Charlie eagerly watched a team of waitstaff begin placing trays of food on the table. Every tray was different, but every single person looked pleasantly surprised when they saw what their meal was going to be. Much to Charlie's surprise, his favorite pizza, pepperoni, sausage, Canadian bacon with garlic, basil, mushrooms, and oregano, all topped off with barbecue sauce, the whole shebang was placed before him. That looks good, Trevor pointed at Charlie's pizza as a tray with a plate containing a large waffle with a thigh of fried chicken atop it was placed before him. A second plate was positioned next to it that held the small carafe of maple syrup, a saucer of butter, and a side of bacon and eggs. Wow, said Charlie, we to one up my pizza. Just like mom used to make, Trevor said. Everyone was so stressed and confused by the situation, no one questioned anything and ate their food. Once they were finished, the trays were collected and each person was offered coffee or tea, which everyone took. Hard to complain about this, the girl next to Trevor said. Their coffee was served and the lights were dimmed. Everyone suddenly, collectively, started talking about Manifest Zeta where everyone had been their normal, introverted, and reserved selves. Now that the walls had fallen, it was going to be more difficult to get them to stop talking. Trevor and Charlie fell into a heavy debate about offense and defense. They, of course, fell into different camps, somewhere in between passive-aggressive and assertive but aware. Charlie preferred a more cautious defense, but knew how to get in and round up the enemy when they started closing in on him. Trevor preferred keeping the enemy on their toes, It was the ability to move between aerial strategies that made MFZ one of the most versatile flight simulators on the market. It was also why they were all guinea pigs. It was hard not to feel a little used, manipulated, and exploited. They were forced to end their conversation and the platoon was to separate into men's and women's dormitories. Each person was allowed their own lockable room that had its own shower and toilet. There were three changes of clothes that looked weird, like the space grey uniform Davis wore, but he had an insignia on the shoulder that was of considerably high rank, if one were to judge any sort of additional competence based on their skills in Manifest Zeta. There was a note on the desk behind him. Thanks for entering the competition. I know you must be so confused right now, but rest assured that it's for a good cause. I didn't know I'd be training this generation of military, but it's been an honor. For our country, for our planet, and for you yourself, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Gregory Yarmouth, Y Games. Gregory's personal email was at the bottom, but just above it was a simple Congratulations, Star Marshal Parker. Charlie didn't know what to make of any of this. It was all so strange, but oddly comfortable. He didn't know at the time that Gregory was thanking him because there was a considerable likelihood that they would die in the near future, just as he hadn't known that he was being groomed to actually shoot aliens out of the sky. He couldn't understand that gamers had become absolutely invaluable throughout the world, and he couldn't understand how close to the brink of total destruction humanity was as a legion of horrors was on its way to Earth at that very moment. Charlie took a shower, changed into the pajamas that had been provided, and scrolled through the horrific news of destruction throughout the world on every form of social media he had. They didn't know what had really happened. So far as everyone knew, nukes had been launched, but no one knew by who. No one had claimed responsibility. No one wanted to. President Barney Rhodes, the independent third-party candidate who had mopped the floor with the pathetic conventional party candidates, as Trevor had alluded, was set to speak later that evening. The election had set off widespread violence throughout the country as both red and blue followers were forced to accept a loss neither party could believe. President Rhodes was able to tamp down the unrest within about two weeks to get everyone back to work as the pandemic at the time had worked through half of the country's population. Charlie closed his phone and put it on the bedside table before going to sleep. 4. My fellow Americans, a great number of tragedies have befallen our world. It is with a heavy heart that I acknowledge the loss of Phoenix Arizona my condolences are and my sympathy is with the people of Switzerland China Russia Japan the UK and the hundreds of millions of other victims across the globe that have suffered as the results of our inaction I choose that word because I feel that I have failed this country and the world itself for such a devastating blow but if we are in war a bullet to the thigh will not stop any one of us We will get up and we will keep fighting. You'll have to put every American down before we're through. There is more to this threat than meets the eye. Explaining that requires a second apology. And this time, a collective admission of guilt on the part of the United States government. We were not attacked by a foreign enemy on this planet, but an enemy that comes from far above. Manifest Zeta is not a mere video game. We have been training your sons, your daughters, your beloved Americans, to focus on the true enemy. Now that this enemy has made itself known, now that this enemy has put weight behind threat, we must retaliate in kind. That requires individuals of a particular nature, people with quick reflexes, quick thinking, and fast reaction time. How else were we to find those among us with those sorts of skills other than by using what we know to find them? This is my admission as your leader, but if any one of you were in my shoes, if any of you saw the kind of threat we were dealing with, the threat we face at this very moment, you would do the very same. We send our first group of fighters on Friday. As America was new to the international warfare game when we were pulled into World War One, the world is new to the interstellar warfare game. There is much to learn in a short period of time. To every single new pilot that has been drafted into the military, Congratulations, thank you, and good luck. Charlie couldn't believe what he was looking at when he and his platoon stood around one of the anti zaytan aircraft that they would be flying in short order. It was hard to see the one on the video they had watched the evening prior. This one was in full light and full view. Even though it had been built on Earth, it still looked otherworldly. The silvery dark gray metal was not porous, and it wasn't sandblasted. In certain lights, it could look and feel either or. The metal was cold to the touch. Each of their sixty-five members took turns opening the hatch and peering inside. They watched one that had been hovering in the nearby launch bay rocket out over the hills beyond the hangar doors. Star Marshal Parker, the engineer called. Let's get you synced up so we can get you through marshal training this afternoon. Charlie glanced nervously at his peers as he stepped forward. He thought he would actually have to get inside the one in front of them until the engineer led him to a sort of pod that looked almost like one of the many chairs from the Zeta Lounge. Charlie sat down, pulled a headset over his eyes, and picked up the controllers connected to it that were identical to the ones that Y Games had licensed out to lounges across the country, those places that seemed in hindsight more like recruitment stations. Charlie didn't care. He licked his lips, ready to begin. The screen Charlie was looking at was a third-person view of the vehicle with everyone standing around it. Parker, the engineer warned. Be careful. Start slow. I'll be a voice in your ear if you need me. Charlie nodded and pulled the accelerator trigger. The ship in MFZ was not the best simulation for this vehicle. The IFP-21 Interstellar Fighter Pod 2021 was probably 100 times more maneuverable than the fighter ship you had in MFZ. There were extra buttons at the thumbs that let him zip up, down, and side to side in three-dimensional space. Whatever navigation was powering the device, it was smart enough to prevent him from smashing into trees or hillsides as he got familiar with the controls. He had three forms of acceleration. His base speed with the left trigger launched him from the ground to about 500 miles per hour. If he pulled the left trigger all the way down and held it, the ship would speed to about 2,000 miles per hour in one direction if he were to hit nothing. The second tier of speed, the right trigger, boosted him up to a potential 10,000 miles per hour unless he was in space. If he were to hit space, holding the right trigger pushed the IFP to 500,000 miles per hour. You'd zip past the moon in minutes just on secondary speed. Holding both triggers down initiated the warp booster, which required the ship's AI to maneuver around objects at high speed. Exactly how fast that was, Charlie didn't know. If he wanted to travel to a different galaxy, he had little doubt this device could make it possible. How does it feel, SMP? The engineer asked from outside of the interface. Like being tossed into the ocean and being told to swim, Charlie said. But I think I'll get the hang of it. I'd say you already have the hang of it. Charlie was soaring by the Eiffel Tower at 8,000 miles per hour, faster than the eye could process, and within just as short a period he was at the loading dock not far from Houston where he'd launched from, where his body was sitting lazily. The ship had returned home of its own accord, probably because Charlie had spent a meager two hours getting used to the considerable difference in speed than he was used to from the video game. As with all things, as soon as he was getting his head around the freedom of movement throughout space, it was time to call it quits. Good work, Parker, said the engineer as Charlie got up from the pod. You have marshal training after lunch. You're going to do well. From the launch bay next to his, Trevor came waltzing around his IFP, looking smug. When he saw Charlie, he hurried to catch up with him. Hey, Parker, why didn't you tell me you were a star marshal? We could have partnered up. You're an SM? Charlie asked him. I'm an NSM, Nova Star Marshal, Trevor said proudly. No freaking way, Charlie spat. I'd have been an NSM, but nobody that rank was playing at 3 a.m. before the board reset. Yeah, the old ZK curved ranking system was bogus. Piss me off, said Charlie. I'd probably be a QSM if they'd done it right. The two pushed through the double doors leading to the corridor to the cafeteria. It really doesn't matter. All the Marshal ranks are in for the Marshal training after lunch said Trevor. The rest of these noob sticks get to suck on our gravitational exhaust, he said loudly as he passed a girl he'd had a disagreement with in the cafeteria the night before. Trevor was the kind of person who could get all of the formalities out of the way in a quick conversation that would leave you either his friend or enemy for life. Somehow, Charlie doubted Trevor would have given him the time of day, however, if he hadn't already figured his rank or overheard Davis address him before they met. They were treated to the lunch of their choice, for Charlie, it was a chicken sandwich and a box of 12-count chicken nuggets from Hen Mignon. He had all the Thai sweet and spicy sauce that he wanted to go with it. Trevor got a protein shake, a Caesar salad with blue cheese, and a baked potato with a side of okra. It looked too bland for Charlie. He thought it was odd that everyone got the food of their choice, which seemed a tall order to fill when there were tens of thousands of them. They still hadn't wrapped their heads around the fact that this was a war effort. The conventional military was obsolete on the ground, in the sea, and in the earthen atmosphere. Why isn't anyone over the age of 25? Charlie asked, looking down at the tables of the cafeteria as he ate his chicken. You haven't figured it out yet? Trevor chuckled. It's because nobody on the entire planet over 25 has the kinds of programmable reflexes required to pilot these things. Wait until we get into combat, he shook his head. It's going to be a different kind of hell. They finished eating and made their way back to the auditorium for a debriefing. While there, they were to memorize the different kinds of aerial formations they were to fall into. That meant the marshal ranking system wasn't totally unnecessary. The person's rank would dictate where in the formation they would be positioned. In addition, they would each be given a number to memorize so that they and the others could snap back to place in the form. Trevor and Charlie sat in their seats with the rest of the marshals. There were about 600 people in the auditorium, which meant they were the best of the best of the best. Charlie wondered who the current supernova marshal was. There could only be one every week the rank system remained in place. In the beginning, it wasn't uncommon for one pilot to take S&M for two or three weeks, but it was rare for one person to remain in power for long once the hype took hold. A man in his early 20s with short red hair and a matching red beard and goatee stepped onto the stage. He wore the same goofy uniform that the rest of them wore. It was the kind of outfit that was okay if everyone wore it, but if you just showed up at the grocery store wearing that, people would think you had a serious fashion deficiency. How's everybody doing? First flight, little grub in the tank, you guys are naturals and we're excited to show you the ropes. My name is QSM Gray Dacey. We're gonna go over formation real quick so you guys don't smack into each other like a bunch of idiots humping a podium. When do we get to see Billy Molly Black? Someone from the audience asked. Dacey scoffed you ruined the surprise. She's supposed to make an appearance sometime this week, but for now, it's very important that we get everybody trained up and ready for launch in the morning. We have our first martial movement with the minister this afternoon. A quick couple of things. Once we've synchronized, the minister will take control of your vehicle. Honestly, the minister will be controlling all of us until we get into range of the mother ship. How many of you have ever played any command and control video games? Things like Order and Siege or Solarcraft, whoever you are as the executive controller of the whole fleet of guys you're controlling, you would be considered the minister. We have commanders on high who will be coordinating us to our battle locations. From there, our skills are what will make or break us. Moving on to formations, Faisi continued. Outside of the minister's control, we call it free will, keeping in formation will be crucial. You have your three-dimensional box that you'll stay within, and you'll keep a tight six from your partners up, down, and side to side. We should look like a perfectly moving swarm of bees. There is enough AI on the ship to prevent you from actually running into anyone else, but in keeping to the aerial code of conduct, we are to be a constantly moving single unit. Martial training took all afternoon. By the end of it, the IFP felt like a normal piece of military equipment that required considerable adjustments and skill. The vessel seemed to push the limit of what the human mind was capable of comprehending when it came to speed. Also part of martial training was to round up and eliminate a zeta cloud. The students hadn't witnessed combat yet, so they were essentially just playing war games with one another, but they watched a video of one of the current fully trained pilots zipping in and jacking Zetans. He rotated his ship to create a spinning disc through the air. The Zetans fired green lasers at him, which beamed past the ship as he avoided each shot. It took him a few minutes, but as with MFZ, the pilot was able to maneuver out of the way and shoot down each Zaytan of the cloud with the help of three other marshals that swam around the opposite end of the cloud. Doing this confused the cloud, making it harder for the Zaytans to pick a target. One could also fire a photon bomb into the cloud to disrupt their order and send them shooting in all directions. Charlie could see, specifically, how MFZ had been designed as a kindergarten training course to graduate young people to a level where they could comprehend the controls to speed ratio. Without conditioning, none of them would be able to pilot the IFP while simultaneously firing on enemies. One needed to grasp the three dimensions of movement and the fourth motion of time. They needed to be trained to pass through high-speed, high-tension experiences in order to compete with the Zaytans. Charlie encountered a few crossed wires, times when he pushed down to go up or moved up to go down. After three days, he had the controls crystallized. Friday morning came quickly. Charlie and his platoon were scheduled to take their first mission to clear the Zetans from a planet they were currently occupying. Once they finished securing the planet, they were to set up an outpost base on that location. That planet's name was Rolossophon 8, an icy exoplanet that had a similar nitrogen to oxygen ratio to Earth's. They would be able to have a base location that was in between Earth and Zeta Reticuli within the 82 Eridani system. Everyone was both eager and terrified as they ate their breakfast in groggy morning silence. When the time came for them to pilot their vehicles, Charlie put on his VR goggles, picked up the controllers, and sat back in his seat. He had no control of the IFP as it and the others lifted off and clouded together in the air around the launch hangar. At least 2,000 of the ships blotted out the sun as media crews bunched together at the military checkpoint to see them off. Helicopters and news drones circled the safe space around the facility in the distance. Good morning, everyone. My name is S.C. Thomas Banks, your minister for today. A voice spoke through his dashboard comm that filled the tiny cabin. I don't mean to brag, but I won three of the last solar craft contests in a row. Thank you very much. Sit back, relax, and say goodbye to Earth. The ship launched into motion. Not just any motion, but warp speed motion. His view was moving so fast, even for a vessel that was supposed to negate the effects of movement and motion within the cabin of the IFP, the sight compressed within the camera view. When the ship slowed to a manageable speed for Charlie to feel his minor control of the ship, everything on the other side was chaos. It was like being thrown into the mothership of MFZ without warming up or easing your way into the action. There were so many Zaytan ships, hundreds of thousands. Several platoons were already out there, but it was hard to see what was going on. All right, everyone, I'm highlighting the enemies. Get out there and do what you do best, SC Thomas Banks said. Hundreds of thousands of ships slowly glowed red as the groups under the minister's control were released. Charlie Parker loved Manifest Zeta. He might have loved it more than anything in his life, so when he was able to get control of that interstellar fighter pod, he was an eagle in flight. He made it look easy, and so did thousands of other gamers. They zipped into the fray, using the cobalt blue lasers to aim with the central reticle while blasting silvery alien discs to puffs of silent explosions in space. There was no gravity, so their blast was like a floating popped popcorn against the backdrop of space. Jolly must have toasted thirty of the buggers before the marshals rallied together. With the Zaytans scattered all over, it took longer to whittle them down. They had learned in martial training to chase the outskirts of a Zeta Cloud so they could swarm them into a circle where the lower ranks could enter the spinning clockwise chaos and take them down faster. Already up to 200! Trevor swam past him to steal Charlie's kill. Charlie smirked and the two met one another side by side as they curved around the outer rim of what everyone dubbed the toilet bowl. By the time a Zeta Cloud had been cleared, all that remained was a mucky green radiation fog from all the blown gravity reactors. Unfortunately, the Zed boost was truly a work of fiction. Heads up, we've got Zayton Reapers. SC Banks highlighted the weird Zayton ships that looked like floating plus signs. They could slip into a subdimension dimension while continuing to move through this universe, but remaining in an untouchable ghost-like state. They weren't as fast as the smaller disks, but crept up on fighters and appeared out of nowhere. The Zaytans weren't as assertive as the assault upon their planet would suggest, but they did occasionally tag one of their IFP ships and destroy them. There were three forms of attack powerful close range, powerful long range, and average medium range. All of their IFPs were set to average medium range so their laser strike wouldn't blow the shield off a Reaper. A focused laser beam sniper shot to the center of a Reaper ship could destroy one instantly, but good luck holding a laser beam charge for three seconds on something moving in space while you're moving in space. The computer would try to lock onto it and hold the target, but the whole IFP shifted around almost constantly, even more so in combat. Just trying to track a target could be wildly disorienting. There was no up or down. There was no gravity. Everything happened within a chaotic sphere of targets and allies. Things went up, things went down, things went from side to side. It was chaos and Charlie was in heaven. To everyone's good fortune, the current IFP had a light frequency around it that was built into the gravity reactor. The same field that kept the ship from hitting objects while moving light years at a time kept them housed in a bubble that could also cancel out friendly fire in case allies were within sight of a target that was being fired upon. It happened more often than one would expect, and while it didn't destroy an ally ship, the AI and the computer absolutely kept track of accidental friendly fire. A person only committed intentional friendly fire once, and they'd be lucky to survive the trip home and be court-martialed. A strict code of conduct was expected of the pilots, a person could be reprimanded, they could be educated if they erred in ignorance, but the fleet prided itself in honor, justice, and equal treatment of all its ranked members. Rank could be earned through work only. A pilot had to make themselves an asset. They had to earn their place amongst the crew. Marshals, disperse, SE Banks said from the communicator. He sounded distracted. Marshals, I've evenly matched you with a partner from each of your platoons who will both complement your skills and allow you to bring them up to your level. I want you to stay with this person and keep them safe. A soaring ship was highlighted within the chaos that was going on throughout one of the many toilet bowls. Charlie didn't know it at the time, but they would never have such an uncoordinated assault again. This was a learning experience. Everyone would be required to keep form in the future, not just the marshals. Charlie found his partner and stayed at their side. It was a good thing he did, too, because a fleet of spiky Zeta craft known as Zeta Krogies warped into proximity to their position in the battle radius. The Krogeys had a shield that the IFP-23 was supposed to be able to implement. Until then, however, the Zayton Krogeys had a slight advantage in the firepower and defense department. They targeted the ships next to Charlie and his partner, blowing both out of the sky. Charlie and his partner did what was known in aerobatics as a half-Cuban, where one doubles back while performing an inside loop. Having no gravity was helpful, but it's very different to gauge positions in space without the Earth as a reference point. They had learned a number of maneuvers, but were told to expect to botch them the first thousand times before getting them hardwired. Charlie and a crew of others circled several of the Krogi ships, but couldn't get their lasers to take them down. One pilot circled around and drove right at them while charging their sniper laser. It didn't do quite enough, but when Charlie and his partner hit it with their centered charged sniper shots, one of the vessels exploded into debris, sending a larger than average shockwave in all directions. He had learned how to communicate with other specific pilots, but it took more time than he had to set up at the moment. Later he would be able to do everything without interruption, but for now he and everyone else had to learn on the go. They must have lost a hundred of their ships already to the Zaytans, but at least they were giving more than they were receiving. Check this out. Trevor's voice issued from over the local channel as Trevor zipped over one of the spiky ships. There were several features of the gravity reactor that had been harnessed from the original UFOs that the IFPs were made from. One was the ultra-bright lights that everyone saw in the movies, and another from the movies was the tractor beam. Everyone's seen those documentaries, movies, and claims about a person being hit with a light and then sucked onto a UFO. For whatever reason, most of those people were on psychedelics when that stuff took place, so it was hard to lend credibility to any of their stories. Each of the pilots knew about the gravity beam, or tractor beam, but none had considered using it in combat. Trevor was able to grab one of the Krogi ships out of the odd, chest-like formation the Zaytans displayed, and literally throw it like a grenade into a crowd of basic-class Zaytan ships. Trevor charged, took aim, and sniped the spiky center of the ship with his partner to demolish the whole crowd of them. The maneuver would come to be known as the Slick Glick, and utilizing it across the skies over the green planet of Relasophon 8 far below gave them just the advantage they needed to send the Zaytans packing and running home. The Zaytans slowly retreated, moving away from the dogging of the Earthlings to warp and mass. It was a thrilling win with less than 500 lost ships, but 500 losses when there are only so many IFP ships was devastating. The total cost of the battle was approximately $600 billion. The cost was high, but the world was at war. For the first time in modern human history, however, it was not at war with itself. Charlie was set to provide patrol duty until the barracks had been constructed. The planet below had breathable oxygen, but it was plagued by constant blizzard storms that contained wind speeds that could become as high as 60 miles per hour. It meant a base had to be built to last, and built preferably underground. Charlie spent the day killing Zeta's scout formations between times of making sure his partner, platoon, and fellow marshals didn't get themselves killed. His brain became both adept and numb to the killing of Zetans. They were bizarre creatures, but when pressed they moved predictably. Fresh platoon is set to arrive in two minutes. Come on back, said the minister. You guys have been out there for 22 hours and the barracks aren't even close to being finished. He lost control of his IFP, and as did the rest of the crowd that he had arrived with. They stopped for a second before Charlie watched the tight compression in the camera. Relief washed over him as his home planet of Earth grew larger within seconds. Literally minutes prior, he was killing Zaytans in a systematic fashion. He thought about that as his ship burned through the atmosphere and comfortably landed on the bay of the hangar with the rest of the IFPs. Charlie's body felt cramped and achy, like he'd sat in a chair for the last day without getting up. He and everyone else was required to go through an hour-long yoga class to wind down. As soon as the lights went down, two-thirds of the class crashed like kids who just finished three days of Disneyland. MFZ was fun, but the stakes were higher in real life. The amount of stress one felt while chasing Zayton's for over 18 hours was something that few over 25 would want to experience. He couldn't believe he was standing in his room back at the base as he closed the door behind him. He felt like he was still speeding through space the way one feels like they're still on a roller coaster even after they've left the theme park and gone home. The arcs and loops and quick movements cut through his chest every time he moved or got up. Charlie took a shower and was really hoping to sleep as he dried off but his phone flashed with an alert from his newest commanding officer, Fleet Commander Ty Harris. It was a mass text that said he wanted to get everyone together for a quick debrief in the oratory. Charlie stood with everyone else in the hall as the commander told them they had done well, but there was a lot of room for improvement. Many of them would be shifting positions and ranks to reflect their carefully monitored abilities in the cockpit of the IFPs. Everything was being tracked, Time between kills, heart rate, physical duress during extreme moments of action, it was all calculated by an advanced algorithmic AI that had been in its beta phase while MFZ was popular. At that moment, legions of lawyers were filing lawsuits against the US government for not only hiding this from the public, but for immediately conscripting their children based on those intentionally subtle invasive video game statistics. Some of the lawsuits would move a little, but the lawyers would come away from their efforts empty-handed. People could blame the government for a lot, but it knew the threat and it also knew what it would take to combat that threat. The legal tactics may be despicable, but only gamers could fight this war, and so gamers were the invaluable assets that they took. Charlie's rank remained the same, but he was okay with that. He and everyone else returned to their rooms. He was able to sleep a poor, fit-filled sleep as he relived his many, many moments at the helm of the IFP. His dreams were nightmares because they were always outnumbered. There were always more Zatans than there were star pilots. They dogged him until his dreams ended in fire and destruction. He slept for five hours before the alarms rang out through the base. 5. The text from the fleet commander was to get to the launch bays immediately. Explosions shook the base as the halls were choked with pilots heading for the launch bays. Charlie heard someone behind him tell someone else that the Zatans were attacking the cities directly. Each person entered the launch bay and made for their IFP pod. Charlie was surprised to see that he was still eager to get behind the wheel as he uploaded into the headset, even though he had spent so much time in the pilot's seat already. When he launched, it was mid-morning as they returned in the early morning while it was still dark. He thought it was cloudy outside until he realized that the sky was blackened with Satan ships that were pouring through the atmosphere like the most terrifying hailstorm in history. They zipped and rocketed all over the place, shooting at random things they saw. They tore up the roads, decapitated buildings in major cities, and terrorized the streets with their gravity beams. If there was ever any question about the existence of UFOs, it was impossible to deny their existence now. The damn flying saucers were covering the globe in the hundreds of thousands. The rumors Charlie had overheard now made sense. People had wondered why there was so little resistance when they took Relasophon 8. They figured if these buggers had mastered interstellar space travel by now, then there would have to be an insurmountable number of them floating around the galaxies. The universe is a big place. There were likely whole star systems inhabited by the strange Zaytan creatures. The rumor was that the universe is so big that it may take a while for them to assemble all together. However, once they did, it would be a mass of enemies the likes of which Earth had never seen. The IFP had such great defense shield that it required a considerable amount of firepower to destroy one alone, Charlie was able to outmaneuver six or so of them as they zipped maddeningly from one setting to the next. One moment, Charlie would be looking out over cornfields, spinning to avoid taking damage as he skillfully circled behind each of the Zaytan ships, and the next he would be roaring past a snow-capped mountaintop. There were always more of them. He'd take out one group and dive right into another aerial battle, sometimes one where his fellow pilots were whittling down the Zaytan forces. It occurred to everyone that this was a battle on their home turf. Earth was their planet. Ships were lost, but each pilot took this one personally. And just like that, after feeling inspired while defeating his 610th Satan, he was surrounded by thousands of Satan ships. Charlie fired into an endless tornado of the Zatans over the deserts of New Mexico to no avail. Their destructive gravity beams chewed through his shield and eventually the visor went black. He had died. About five seconds later, the machine seemed to reboot. The camera clicked on and Charlie was looking out through a brand new IFP windshield. He launched out through the hangar doors into pure chaos. A storm of Zayton ships mixed with the clouds of IFP ships on their side. It was happening all over their home base near Houston. Part of the problem was the panic one felt when engaging in such a maelstrom of threats. Just the projectiles of the Zayton ships themselves as they swam past him at hundreds to thousands of miles per hour could be lethal to any one of their vessels. There were so many enemy targets. The skies were darkened with gray Zayton ships. Charlie got together with another group of marshals and cleaned house. At least they thought they were cleaning house until their visors went black one after the other. Charlie caught a glimpse of his friend's defeated machines that were spinning toward the open sea below. And then green beams of light ended his vision in darkness as well. Nothing made a pilot feel worse than seeing the sudden blank void of death. Each pilot was re-uploaded to another IFP as quickly as they could be churned out. Chatter over the radio gave indication that a Chinese fleet was attempting to draw the ire of the storm on the Zaytan's flank. By now, every country in the world had their own brand of flying saucer in the skies. The trick was to high-speed warp beyond the mess to join with his fellow Earthlings without getting killed before doing so. The Chinese ships looked more like the Zayton saucers than the more sleek design of the IFP. Their signatures had been marked in blue on his radar by the ship's AI. As with the others of his own team, Charlie was able to work with the Chinese pilots. They were all humans, conditioned to adapt and recognize patterns in the behaviors of their foes. He got into the zone as he found himself flying through the wreckage of yet another Zayton aircraft over the Atlantic. Just like that, he was shooting down a Zayton platoon over Timbuktu. The jungles of South Africa passed in a blur overhead as he flew without thought of the planet or gravity around him. He centered on a target, or targets, processed how to eliminate them, and then did so without a moment's reflex. It seemed that this went on for ages. The sun, or moon, appeared in different parts of the sky. He glanced at the globe floating to the right of his screen and saw that he was in India now, soaring over the mountains of the Himalayas. Six Zaytans were trying to take him out of the sky, but they ended up on the opposite side of Charlie's laser beams in short order. The powder white of the polar ice cap swam below like a rushing river. It was interrupted by deep, horrifyingly endless blue before being consumed by the icy hills of Greenland below. He spent at least an hour trying to help New York City with his fellow fighters, but it was the most densely populated area of the country. The Zaytans simply overwhelmed and sent the defenders running. They moved on to other targets South America, the Pacific, Australia, back to Africa. They might have been outnumbered, but wherever the Zaytan forces were sparsest, the humans dominated. Unfortunately, their efforts were fruitless. The atmosphere of Earth was flooded with Zayton ships that zipped and warped in by the thousands. They killed anything that moved, even citizens on the street. Charlie took severe damage as he tried to protect Cape Town with a group of people from home, but there were too many targets. As with every instance, Charlie started taking too much damage to recover from and eventually his VR went black. He waited to be uploaded again, but this time nothing happened. Slowly pulling off his VR, Charlie looked out to see his fellow teammates lethargically getting out of their pods. They had been fighting nonstop for at least 26 hours. Everyone was ordered to go back to their rooms. Charlie joined the flow of students as they filed to the dormitory hall. Once Charlie entered his room, he sat on the edge of his bed with his hands on his knees. It was hard to do nothing when he had just been doing everything. Charlie checked his phone to see that Night Lieutenant Davis had ordered him to the parking garage where they had entered the facility. Having nothing better to do, he entered the corridor to meet with Davis. As he went, he saw a few others filing down the corridor in the same direction. Trevor entered the hall ahead of Charlie. The girl from the bus also entered ahead, turning to catch Charlie and Trevor's attention. Miranda! Trevor whispered loudly. The two slowed until they were side by side with Charlie. How'd you guys do? Miranda asked. Like dog crap, how about you? Trevor asked. Same, she said. Same, Charlie added. I guess there are no more IFPs, Miranda suggested. Not sure, said Trevor. Davis just said to meet at the parking garage. Me too, said Charlie. Me too, Miranda gave a small grin. The three walked in silence until they turned down the passage leading to the parking garage where they had arrived not even two weeks prior. When they entered, they saw six other students waiting with Davis already. Davis looked up at them as they entered the garage. He beckoned them over to an elevator. The ten were just barely able to fit together in the larger-than-average elevator compartment. There were ten basic levels on the elevator control panel, but Davison put a code on the keypad at the top instead. The elevator shook and then began its descent. Trevor cleared his throat within the awkward silence. So, did we win? Davis glanced at him without turning his head. No. There are no more IFPs, are there? Another girl asked. Unfortunately not, Davis said. Somehow I don't think it would matter if we had a million more. Not a billion, not even a trillion. Their numbers are cosmically endless. What are we going to do? Charlie asked. What we as human beings always do, said Davis. Outsmart the enemy against glaringly hopeless odds, or die trying. The elevator doors opened to an underground train and subway platform that looked far more advanced than their currently known level of public transportation. Davis pressed a card key to the silver square panel on the door to the train. A green light flashed and the door slid open. The nine others, beyond the ability to ask questions, filed onto the train behind Davis. 6. It took 30 minutes for them to arrive in southern Nevada from Houston via the high-speed bullet train. No one mentioned why they were going to Nevada, but the train hissed to a halt within an underground platform about a hundred miles north of Las Vegas. Upon their arrival, a trio of armed guards greeted them. They were led to a small transport shuttle like the ones from the airport, and the nine were dropped off in a busy underground hub full of people in lab coats, high ranking uniforms, and the occasional flight technician. There was a small cafeteria with different restaurants lining the walls adjacent to the entrance. Welcome to S4, said Davis. This is where it all began. A familiar man was walking by when he did a double take at the nine kids. Holy smokes! Charlie realized where he knew him from and was suddenly beside himself. Gregory Yarmouth! He broke form and grabbed Gregory's hand. You invented Manifest Gregory withdrew his hand and adjusted his glasses. He was a head shorter than Charlie with a thick auburn beard and mustache beneath large black-rimmed glasses that magnified his eyes. I... sort of, yes... No game is invented by one person in the end. Yeah, but you coded the ZE007 engine that kicked off the whole enterprise from your closet over a ten-year period. That's some banana's dedication. Gregory's face went a shade redder. Good to know some millennials are paying attention. Their meeting was interrupted by Davis. We're in a bit of a hurry. Can you point us in the direction of the Experimental Launch Department? ELD is straight down that hall and on your left, said Yarmouth. Can't miss it and you'll see why when you get there. Davis nodded and beckoned for the nine students to follow. "'Good meeting you, Gregory,' Charlie called as the group continued down the corridor. Gregory Yarmouth waved over his shoulder and continued to the cafeteria across from where they entered. "'Snowflake,' Trevor said under his breath. "'He's one of those they-them types,' he said so only Charlie could hear him. Charlie rolled his eyes and ignored him. He hated politics, and he hated when people injected politics into every little thing. A month ago, even Trevor would have given his left leg to have a quick conversation with Gregory Yarmouth. They turned the corner and stepped into a gargantuan hangar full of at least five different types of UFOs. In the middle was the classic flying saucer that everyone had seen a million times in fiction. It didn't look as big or mysterious suspended over the rest of the otherworldly spacecraft dispersed throughout the hangar. Charlie's starstruck expression crossed everyone's face when a man in front of them with two bodyguards turned around. The sitting president of the United States of America, Barney Rhodes, nodded in salutation as the nine teenagers and college students gaped back at him. "'Morpheus!' Trevor whispered loudly enough for the president to hear. Charlie reflexively jabbed him in the ribs with his elbow. President Rhodes smiled and tied his hands behind his back. "'Well, look what we have here. Am I looking at the future saviors of humanity right now?' he asked, but no one answered. I wish our meeting could be under better circumstances, but as of right now, we are in a dire situation. Presidents rarely concede defeat, but it's impossible to call the disaster that happened over the surface of our planet today a success. Our options grow thin, but we do have one final mission ahead of us. You nine are our last hope. No pressure, or anything, Night, Lieutenant Davis smirked. President Rhodes beckoned with a crook of his chin, turned around and led the tent to the center of the room beneath the flying saucer that everyone was so familiar seeing in the Zayton forces. I've been told that the Zaytans are standing down, but they've shot every vehicle in the air out of the sky. They stopped once we grounded our airplanes and told everyone to stay indoors. Rhodes sighed. The course of action we have is to fire up these ships around us and send them back to the mother ship. There are currently nine functioning aircraft, correct? Davis asked. Correct. The president nodded. They're Zayton ships, so we believe they won't fire on them unless provoked to do otherwise. However, some of the ships here are outdated based on the units in their fleet. Some of these ships are thousands of years old. The flying saucer here came from one of the Giza pyramids. We can all assume that this is the most commonly used model ship the Zaytans have. It's also the most likely to reach the mother ship. And we only have one? Trevor spoke up. This is the best one, and, as the fourth highest ranking member of the group, it's just for you, Nova Star Marshal. President Rhodes met Trevor's eye. What exactly is the objective in reaching the mother ship? Charlie asked. Each ship will be set for a remote detonation with a powerful nuclear warhead. Your only task is to reach the Zayton mothership that currently resides in Zeta Reticuli at whatever cost, Rhodes said. W- wait, there's no second half of this mission, is there? Trevor asked. Unfortunately not. That changes the dynamic a bit, Miranda said. The president shrugged. Given all of your training, all of your skills, are you willing to turn your back on our world? Could you sleep at night knowing that you had the chance to spit in the eye of our oppressor and chose to do nothing? The nine young men and women exchanged worried looks. That's what I thought. I'm here, asking you to donate yourselves to a cause that is far greater than you can possibly imagine. If we can destroy that mother ship. It changes everything on this planet going forward. I'm in, Trevor said determinedly. Me too, Charlie added. Me as well, another boy answered. His last name was Garcia and he was a star marshal just like Charlie and Trevor. You can count on me, Miranda nodded. The rest of the pilots joined the cause without hesitation. Is there any other choice when the President of the United States himself asks one to sacrifice themselves to do what they've been training to do their entire life? Charlie didn't want to die, but he also couldn't imagine living in a world without being able to fly a ship like the IFP-21 every single day. He couldn't imagine a universe where creepy greys were the dominant force within the skies while humans toiled underground helplessly. President Rhodes shook their hands in succession and awarded each of them an honorary medal for their bravery. Once the last man was pinned, the president stepped back to address them all. I know this doesn't mean much, knowing there's almost zero chance any of you will return to Earth, but I want you to know that we, the people of this planet and of this country, are counting on you. We are in your debt, and you will all be remembered as the heroes that you are. You have my thanks. All of your families will be duly compensated, regardless of what happens going forward. President Rhodes saluted them, to which the ten stood at attention and salute. The president dropped his arm and folded his hands behind his back as the bodyguards led him out of the room. The nine of them were greeted by several scientists who were to show them the ropes on how to fly the actual UFOs dispersed throughout the large facility-like cars in a showroom. Charlie finally had the realization that they weren't going to be piloting these things via VR at a distance. They were going to be piloting them physically, in person. "'Good morning, my name is Robert Beam,' said the lead scientist." He had a thin pair of brown-rimmed glasses and wore a lab coat over his plaid shirt and khaki pants. So, this is a much different interface than the ones you're used to from Manifest Zeta. Honestly, when the Y Games guy showed up with this silly video game idea, I thought the whole project was bogus. But here we are, in the middle of a losing interstellar war with Zeta Reticuli. Come on over here and let me show you how these things work real quick. Unfortunately, the majority of your education will be hands-on. Dr. Beam led the group to a large dry erase board where the instructions for flight had been scrolled amidst pictures of movement, accented with arrows, and short explanations. On the table between them, the otherworldly gray dashboard was positioned so that they could put the picture to the physical object. It was a rectangular panel with four lifted square or rectangular shapes, and a fifth single triangular shape. An actual flying disc UFO lay tilted on its side behind them. It looked innocent here, almost like a playground toy that hadn't been painted. Robert adjusted his glasses and grinned. We used to get in these things on Wednesday nights and fly them around Papoose Lake, come back down and have a few beers afterward. Never would have thought they'd be our last line of defense. So there are no buttons, no computers, no bathrooms in these things. It's a very bare-bones interface. Once you get into the seat, the actual seats were all removed and replaced with human-sized seats, you'll see a kind of dashboard that looks like this. You'll see that the controls require both hands, almost like an arcade and joystick. You've got your propulsion and speed with the left circle, maneuverability with the right. You can rest your thumbs on the circles and let your index fingers hover over the defense systems on the right hand. The Zaytans have long arms and long fingers so they can sit back and work effortlessly. What does the square on the upper left do? Miranda asked, pointing at the top left of the dashboard. Oh, it has something to do with time, said Robert. We never really figured out how to get that one to work. No matter how much we tried to get it to do what it was allegedly supposed to do, the best thing would be to stick to the basics and try to avoid hitting the ground. There's nothing inside it to prevent you from running into physical matter, unless you kick the machine into interstellar speed, which you're going to have to do to get outside the solar system. Have you done that in this thing? Trevor asked. Only enough to test the gravity reactor. I mean, coming back from interstellar space is nightmarish. You don't want to try to translate your way through the Zeta navigation in the upper deck of the ship. It's a pain in the ass. I'll give each of you a cheat sheet that will allow you to follow a sequence of directions so you can get back home if you can, but it only works from the Zeta Reticuli region of space. This is assuming any of you have a chance to make it back home. Once you arrive in our solar system, just follow the sun and you'll eventually be able to find Earth. Quick question, said Trevor. When the Zaytans turn on us midway through our flight, how do we shoot their annoying green beams back at them? The weapons function, over here. Dr. Beam indicated the rectangle under where one's right index finger would be. You'll tap that one to fire the zaytan lasers. The middle finger one activates the tractor beam. You can turn on the ridiculously bright light by touching the square under your ring finger. They only have three fingers and a thumb. How are we supposed to maneuver like we did in MFZ when the controls are just a bunch of shapes on a control panel? You get pretty good at it. Everything you need is there like a video game controller. Just feels more like you're using a keyboard. You'll get the hang of it once you get some practice. Let me show you how to get inside. Dr. Beam walked everyone to a suspended saucer where they could stand under it. He positioned his hands on a panel on the underbelly of the vehicle. If you just press here, the panel collapses to the side like a folding box. He pushed and the bottom panel accordioned open wide enough for one of them to slip inside. Since you're going on two feet taller than the Zaytons, you'll notice that you can't stand all the way up inside unless you stick your head up into the navigation area of the upper part of the ship. It's designed so that you're lying back. You can reach the controls and look up and interact with the navigation interface above the central archway. There are no windows on this thing, so in order to see out, you have to look through a sort of transparent archway that is essentially what we call a monitor for your computer. Does all of this make a little bit of sense? Dr. Beam asked. Everyone nodded, even though they all knew they couldn't really grasp how it all worked until they had a chance to test fly one of the vessels. Well, if you guys are ready, we'll send you on your way. Like I said, go to the bathroom now. You won't be able to go without having to deal with it later. Make your peace with God while you're at it. The group had a chance to empty their bladders and come back, eat a ham sandwich that had been prepared for them as a last meal, no more gourmet wishless dinners, and each was given a helmet and a padded uniform. It was also surreal to Charlie. He felt euphoric and numb as he put on the equipment that was designed to cushion the blow. Should he wreck the flying saucer that had been nothing but a myth a month prior, it was an extreme possibility he would crash or would die before reaching the mother ship. He and the others regrouped in the hangar with the flying saucers. The scientists and military personnel were making sure the explosives would detonate on each of the Zayden ships upon impact or command. Davis told them that to detonate the explosives manually they would need to press and hold the red activate button under the button guard on the activation switch each person was given for the last ten seconds. It would not only defeat the Zatans, but it would mean that they were finished with their mission as well. It seemed a desperate gasp and a war that had already been clearly decided. They wouldn't all make it, but they didn't all have to. Only one person needed to reach the mother ship. Charlie had slept on the high speed train, but other than that, he hadn't slept very much in the last few weeks. Ever since his life had changed after the competition, duty, work, and skill was all he cared to do. Even sleep seemed secondary. Regardless of his sleep quality, he felt clear, ready, excited even, as he walked to his flying saucer that was rigged with a nuclear bomb that in combination with the destabilized gravity reactor could destroy an entire planet. He would be the first casualty on detonation. We set you guys up with a headset that's synchronized to a private channel so you can all communicate with each other, said Davis. He gave Charlie an earpiece. There's a receiver on the dashboard. We put it next to your pinky so your hand doesn't have to travel far to reach it. There's an emergency kit on board as well, should you need it. I don't think you will, unfortunately. Is there anything else I can do for you, Star Marshal Parker? I don't think so, Charlie said, feeling nervous about getting inside. In that case, Charlie, it was an honor to serve with you. Davis shook his hand. Good luck. Hey, are we here for a love fest or are we taking down aliens? Trevor asked from next to his flying saucer. Davis ignored him. Take a little time to get used to her. You're going to do just fine. Each pilot donned a streamlined spacesuit with a lame-looking helmet and boarded their flying saucer or oddly-shaped vehicle. There were only five of the flying saucer models, but there was also one that was shaped like a diamond and another three that everyone recognized as the Zayton Reapers. Because Miranda, Trevor, and Charlie were ranked third, fourth, and fifth in the system, they all received the flying saucer models that were in the best condition. Gabriel Garcia was number one, and Rochelle Wilson was number two. Abigail Zellner, Nelson Field, and Jonathan Brain were all assigned the Reapers. Jeff Little took the diamond, climbing a small staircase so he could get to the hatch. Charlie ducked as he slid around the narrow chair where he would be hunched with his back against the inner wall of the rounded saucer top. The dashboard was there, in front of the chair that had been modified and now took up most of the leg space between the reactor mounted below and the control panel. The moment Charlie sat in the chair, the cramped feeling hit him. The seat was uncomfortable and his legs barely had enough room to rest even though the other two chairs had been removed from the inside, mostly to make room for the explosives. Charlie was literally in the same room with charged explosives that would turn his dinky flying saucer into a minor black hole. A sort of inner light came on throughout the ship as the shape controls were highlighted in baby blue light. Charlie put his thumbs on the two circles as he'd been instructed. The archway that sat directly across from the main seat displayed the hangar around them. A solar system navigation display appeared overhead in blue-hued holographic light. Zayton's script appeared throughout the interface. It was strange. Charlie noticed as he lifted the vessel off the ground. The ship seemed to be spinning, but his vision ahead remained suspended and still. Trevor's saucer launched ahead, followed by Gabriel and Miranda. Charlie put his pinky on the communication button that was bulky and black in a human technology way. It looked out of place, mounted upon the smooth steel dashboard of the UFO. So, how do we go? Oh. The speed took him and he was off. 7. Several hangar doors at the end of the tunnel opened as Charlie's UFO and the other eight ships soared in their martial formation behind Gabriel Garcia. The maneuverability and speed of the ships was familiar from the IFP-21. Charlie was missing the split controller that made kicking back and flying less hands-on, so to speak. He looked around the cabin and thought about how small one would have to be in order to find this sort of interface comfortable. The group emerged from the hangar doors and flew over Papoose Lake and then over the deserts of Nevada. The sun was beautiful in the western sky that was mostly clear of Zatan's. There were a few of the saucers hovering over the mountains to the west, but the clouds of ships had receded to the darkness of space. The group dispersed to get a feel for the controls on their own. They had a measly ten minutes to figure out the controls. Fortunately, Dr. Beam had taped the label for the different functions of each shape onto the dashboard. Charlie was able to get a handle on the controls quicker than he thought. The mapping wasn't far from the split controller on MFZ. It was just being positioned in the chair the way he was made everything not completely comfortable or accessible. He opted to sit on the edge of his seat as he looked out through the archway to the sandy deserts beneath the orange late afternoon sky. He moved his thumbs on the circles, moving the camera view left and right, then up and down, and zipped upside down alongside the endless sands below. Rejoining his fellow pilots over the north side of the tiny Papoose Lake, the nine of them turned their noses skyward. Charlie licked his lips as his eyes darted throughout the archway and up to the navigation. It slowly scrolled new information in Zayton as they passed through the layers of Earth's atmosphere and passed the Karman line. Guys, we have company, Trevor said. Three Zayton saucers that weren't of their five were investigating them as they entered the cold emptiness of space. They're powering up their weapons. Looks like we won't be going in covertly. Trevor broke off from the bunch and dragged the green Zayton beams across the three clueless Zaytans before they could react. A sudden surge of Zaytans descended from the darkness surrounding them. They were hard to see but for the flashes they made as the sun bounced off their shapes. The group followed their training in fighting the Zaytans. Charlie did what he knew and circled left as Miranda circled right. Abigail Zellner's Reaper exploded as six Satan saucers shot it to pieces. He looked down at the controls for the weapons. Dragging the green beams of the ship over several of the confused enemy saucers, he soared past Miranda and finished off three more as she took the last. We can't stay and fight, Gabriel called over the audio. We have to get past Jupiter and then we can follow Dr. Beam's instructions to Zeta Reticuli. The eight remaining members regrouped and jetted past the moon. Just follow Dr. Beam's coordinates up there in the navigation and we should pass Mars in a few minutes. Trevor took the lead. The group had been trained to outsmart the Zayton forces, but they weren't as learned in triangulating their precise position in outer space. And Charlie had balked at the need for advanced mathematics when he was just a boring high school student. Get ready. I'm reading more coming in. One of the other boys, Damon Wells, spoke. Don't lose track of another one, Gabriel said. A cloud of Zatans dogged them as Mars became a marble in the distance. More ahead as well. They're trying to flank us. That's like something we would do. Trevor chuckled over the audio. Let's show them how it's done. Charlie followed Trevor as the group made for Mars ahead. They swam through the planet's atmosphere and hastily rushed over the endless red fields that looked not unlike their own Death Valley back home. The hordes of Zatans followed them but grew lost above the cliffs and crags of Mars. The eight traveled between the canyon valleys of the Martian surface, exiting out over vast swaths of orangey-red desert. The crowd that had been following them was gone. Because Jupiter was so large, it looked like a pebble in the sky overhead as the group launched back into the atmosphere above the red planet. Whatever you do, don't look behind you, Miranda said. Why? Charlie asked while keeping his hands on the controls. When he looked over his shoulder, he saw an archway that showed their flank. The other six ships of their group were behind him, and behind them, a terrifying storm of Zayton's ships billowed like dark smoke through space in pursuit. I don't think they want us going into their neighborhood. Too bad, said Trevor. Steering for Jupiter, the group remained tight as Mars was consumed by the cloudy storm of Zayton's. I still don't get why we need to go past Jupiter. Zeta Reticuli isn't even in this direction. "'Dr. Beam mentioned something about it being a safety precaution, "'that if one were to theoretically use the warp, "'it would be best if it was a certain number of AUs away from us,' said Miranda. "'I don't think it matters where Zeta Reticuli is "'in reference to our location within our solar system.' "'This is far enough to me, then,' said Gabriel. "'Let's see. "'The sequence Dr. Beam said to put into the navigation "'was the alien claw-looking constellation. "'Should be the second one down.' "'I see it,' Miranda said.' Yeah, second one on the navigation chart thingy, said Trevor. Charlie saw the weird, claw-like constellation within the blue hollow field in the upper deck of the cramped alien spacecraft. Okay, tap that icon. Gabriel sent over the comm, and then his saucer warped and disappeared. Charlie tapped the constellation and felt light-headed as stars filled his vision. His stomach did a somersault as the ship warped back to normal space. The only difference was the green hue of light from the dual stars far in the distance of the galaxy. Well, that wasn't anywhere near as awesome as I thought it would be, said Trevor. We only flew like 40 light years, Damon replied, spitting distance in the scheme of the universe. Holy mothership! Miranda called as she swiveled her ship around in the dark green aura of the Zeta Reticuli star system. There were no exoplanets near the dual stars, so other than the sun there was no frame of reference in regard to direction. However, behind them, like a massive planet so far in the distance it was the size of a golf ball, the gigantic mothership of the Zaytans slowly spun in deep space. It looked eerily similar to the Y Games version in MFZ with the bulbous planet-sized center and a ring of debris swirling around it. The balls had truly been training them for a war with the Zaytan race. First one to the mothership wins, Trevor darted forward. Everyone followed in succession. They raced one another at full speed, scoring hundreds of thousands of miles per hour as they tore toward the giant Zayton mother ship. Between them, thousands of Zayton ships began warping in to defend their home satellite. If anyone else dies, I will personally flog them in the afterlife, Trevor added. Here they come! Charlie yelled as they fired into the surging crowds of Zaytans, spinning and weaving skillfully between their shots and laser beams. The controls weren't that difficult to figure out. The Zaytans had no trouble maneuvering with relative ease on their end. The only challenge Charlie found was trying to keep his back from getting sore after being hunkered over the control panel on the edge of his seat. The Zaytans had developed a long arm so that they could recline while still reaching the dashboard. Everything they had learned in Manifest Zeta came into play. The Zaytans didn't stand a chance in small numbers. The remaining pilots zipped in between their targets, only knowing one another by their strange configuration of old model ships going against the tide of warping in Zayden saucers. Charlie destroyed every saucer that soared into his path with the green laser beams, half-standing to maneuver the ship while shooting oncoming threats out of the way. All the while, the mother ship, beyond the rapidly increasing carnage waiting for them, drew steadily closer. They lost another of their own, Jonathan Brain which made them group tighter together to prevent another accident. It only took one mistake. One misjudgment in a pilot's game would be over. At least their death would be instant, and for a cause that seemed worthy. It was a good thing they were flying so fast, because behind them, the nukes of their lost vessel consumed hundreds of thousands of pursuing Zaytan ships in a massive plume of hot fire. In space, a nuke explosion doesn't look like a mushroom cloud. It appears as an enveloping cloud exploding out from a popcorn kernel. Alien ships launched from the explosion behind them like fireworks. Charlie didn't want to know what it was like inside the cloud, he just knew he wanted to get away from it as quickly as possible. He also didn't want to know how the resulting EMP blast would affect the gravity reactor aboard the ships. Every one of their level had already gone through martial training, so the group of seven remaining ships flew in perfect formation while the mother ship grew larger ahead. It seemed to be coming at them as quickly as they were coming for it. All around them, new Zaytans ships zipped into existence. The ones they didn't eliminate followed in an ever-increasing tail of followers. While the Zaytans had updated their saucer ships, their maximum speed outside of interstellar warp speed was essentially the same across all of their models. That meant that the Zaytan race must have been far older than any of them could understand. The technological advances of human beings were methodical and ongoing, but the Zaytans could update their ship models and the actual engine running the thing won't be noticeably better than before. They cleared the area around them for a moment of relief as they swarmed toward the great vessel ahead. Thousands of Zaytan ships warped between them and the mother ship. It was more than they would have been expected to face and even manifest Zeta, but this was it. This was the final stage of the game. They only needed one ship to break through the clouds of Zayton's to reach and hopefully penetrate the walls of the alien vessel. Everything hinged upon this moment, and Charlie felt more locked in than ever before. Cover me. I'm going to draw their fire, Trevor said. Don't break rank. Not yet, Gabriel instructed. There are too many, Miranda said. Hold back. I'll get them to surround me and clear a path. Not yet, Gabriel yelled. Split into pairs. Pair A, Quadrant 7, Pair B, Quadrant 9, Pair C, Quadrant 1. Gabriel had spent time as a minister, and that was minister speak for the air quadrants ahead based on the keypad on the right side of a keyboard. That meant three different groups of two would be separating to the upper left, the upper right, and the lower bottom of central formation. What about you? Damon Wills asked. You guys just focus on getting through to that mother ship, Gabriel ordered. He technically outranked all of them and his order checked out. Trevor and Charlie partnered together, taking the upper left of the formation. Damon and Miranda took the upper right, Nelson Field and Jeff Little took the bottom left. They maxed out their speeds, staying apart but together in their assigned quadrants. Gabriel covered the three position but zipped ahead of the rest of them. His little saucer was using its tractor beam in conjunction with the gravity reactor's general high speed, which allowed him to launch twice as fast into the enemy ranks far ahead of them. The mother ship was just beyond that cloud. The three groups had to split off from the sudden flash of light as Gabriel's ship was destroyed, taking with it so many Zayton ships that beyond the glowing globe of the EMP blast, a great hole had been formed. The remaining six made contact, engaging with the cloud of Zaytan ships that tried to close in on them. Jeff Little's diamond erupted in a globular burst of death fire, igniting Nelson Field's Reaper. Charlie quickly refocused his saucer's attention upon the mother ship, and then hit the tractor beam button. He was lucky he did because the explosion from the other two ships in such close proximity in their formation would have ignited his ship as well. Trevor was cut off by the explosion, but his ship suddenly stalled out and stopped working rather than igniting itself. Charlie, Miranda, and Damon pulled together, speeding toward the massive wall of the mother ship. They could see multiple entry ports to the great silvery gray beast. Zaytan ships were flooding from the thresholds by the hundreds, but they wouldn't stop them. The three picked the nearest entry and shot their way through, bursting through the Zaytan ranks where they continued flying between the surging Zaytans down a launch shaft. The three narrowly avoided the oncoming saucers, but continued through to a grand infrastructure of the mother ship. The Zaytans had created an entire society throughout the strange, bulbous vessel. Satan saucers flew from one place to the other like bees migrating between flowers. Large glowing green lights like tiny suns lit the darkness of the ship, giving the whole of the interior a dark green hue. There were hundreds of launch pads and bays where they could land. They had no intention of landing, but a field of blue energy passed through the air, causing them to lose most of the control of their ships. They directed their three saucers to a large launch pad where they skidded like three stones skipping against one another. The three of them scraped and bounced to a spinning halt upon the landing pad. Zaytan buildings and structures towered over them as each person held on until the disks could stop spinning. Once the disks rotated to a standstill, Charlie could hear the screeching of numerous Zaytan ships overhead. There were a number of precautionary steps they had been given in the event of certain outcomes. Like, if they had to exit the ship Sands Earth, they would need to make sure their spacesuit was on. He got up and found the black emergency kit case. When he opened it up, there were several rows of canned food, a can opener, a six-pack of small water bottles, and three grades of medical kits that graduated in severity. Holstered in the right slot of the kit was a P-17-22 pistol. He grabbed the handle and pushed the hatch on the floor where he had entered. It folded and he dropped legs first through the porthole. Miranda and Damon, also in their spacesuits, emerged from their ship and examined their downed vessels. They had succeeded in arriving at the location for the mission, but they weren't supposed to be alive. Seeing Charlie and Miranda armed, Damon quickly re-entered his ship, retrieved the pistol from the kit, and returned equally ready. What do you think we should do? Damon asked through the speaker in his suit as the oxygen hissed in and out of the respirator. I'm not sure, said Charlie, looking around. When he looked up, he noticed hundreds of thousands of Zayton ships hovering about fifty yards over their position. They were so still they didn't seem occupied. They just hovered there. Charlie didn't say anything but nudged Damon and Miranda and nodded at the ceiling. That's disconcerting, Damon said. The three took a step back instinctively as the UFO ships surrounding them parted for one larger, more distinguished vessel. It lowered to the floor without a sound. The ship split apart from the middle front, down the bottom, opening like an egg as a strange greenish-gray figure descended to the cold steel floor of the mother ship, They could see eerie, opaque black eyes at the base of the bulbous cranium that was at least three times bigger than the small reptilian mouth and empty black eyes on the lower portion of their face. This was the Queen Mother of the Satans. She had a huge belly and body like that of a large, gooey snail. The obese Queen Mother raised a pudgy arm and showed two fingers, like a peace sign back on Earth. Turned out not to be a peace sign as Miranda, Damon, and Charlie collapsed. It was like their bones just stopped being able to move altogether. They couldn't move, they couldn't speak, and they couldn't even blink. The Zayton Queen towered over their helpless forms. Charlie was the only one who had fallen onto his back in a way so that he could face her. Her tiny mouth seemed to be moving as she slithered closer to them. Two lanky-armed Zayton Greys grabbed Damon and carried him out of Charlie's range of sight. He heard the sound of Miranda being pulled away behind him. Two soft but firm sets of greenish-gray hands wrapped around each of Charlie's arms as he felt the steel floor sliding under his weight. His back hit an incline and the rounded top of the saucer came into view. A sudden explosion rocked the whole interior of the mother ship. Had Trevor gotten through? More booms and bangs thrummed through the mother ship as Charlie was dragged up onto a flying saucer. He was positioned awkwardly against the wall next to Damon and Miranda, who were equally paralyzed. They could hear things exploding as his sealed the hatch and sat down in its relaxed position at the helm of the saucer. The creature wore what looked almost like a black toga over its front. It methodically turned on the interface and powered up the ship. Something heavy ruptured through the atmosphere, but the ship was already in the air and flying. They could see through the archway interface that had been on their own ships beneath the navigation display. The ship exited through the chute and they sped toward the emptiness of deep space. A big boom burst and it was so bright that blinding light shined upon the weird Zayton's shoulders from the rearview display. Trevor had made it. He had landed his nuke and destroyed their objective target. It didn't matter what happened to them now. Their task was complete. The Zayden interacted with the navigation and pressed different shapes on the dashboard. A blue light filled its gray, bald cranium and beady black eyes that were so similar to the Queen Mother's. The UFO hummed around them, and that's when Charlie started getting drowsy. He tried to keep his eyelids open, but could do so no longer. He took a final, dizzying mental image of the alien before his eyes, and then lost consciousness. 8. Charlie opened his eyes from his bedroom to the sunny early morning. He knew something was off when he realized that he was wearing his school clothes, except they were inside out and backwards. His shoes were on his feet, but the left had been shoved uncomfortably on his right, and the left vice versa. He was also lying on top of his bedsheets, not in them. His mother knocked and opened the door in that annoying mom way. Just because she knocked directly before entering didn't mean that he wasn't naked on the other side. You're on the news, his mother crossed her arms, then wrinkled her brow as she assessed that he looked very odd at the moment. What happened to you? "Uh, I don't know. He got out of his bed and took off his shoes. Are you smoking marijuana? She asked as Charlie looked down to see that his shorts were on backwards as well. I'm not on drugs, but please give me five minutes to get changed, Charlie said groggily. He felt more tired than usual, even though he thought he got more sleep than he should have. Fourth place, his mother shook her head with her arms crossed. How much time have you put into that stupid game? She turned and closed the door behind her. Charlie remembered everything in a flood of realization. He quickly changed clothes and picked up his phone. He stared at it for what felt like a long time, listening to the kids from next door play a game of morning basketball on the street outside. It was the day after the original competition. Hadn't weeks passed? He hurried downstairs and turned on the news. It was just the usual spiel of politics and talking heads, but nothing about destruction on a mass scale by alien invaders. He turned and opened his mouth to ask his mom what question came out of his brain first, but every single instance ended with her reaffirming that he might be on drugs or playing MFZ too much. He finally settled on one question that would answer many of his other questions. Is Phoenix okay? He asked. His mom was in the process of spreading jelly on a bagel for him. Phoenix like the city or Phoenix like your aunt's dog? The city? I haven't heard otherwise, she said without looking up at him. Okay. Charlie finished his cereal in silence as the birds whistled in the trees outside their kitchen window. The morning trash truck was making its way down the neighborhood streets a few blocks over. This concludes episode 20 of the podcast. That one has a bit of a complicated ending, but it does make sense. Explaining it here, at least right now, isn't the time or the place. That's one of those stories that needs a little gestation period. I hope everyone had a good new year. I've been putting the final chapters of Dreadnought together. Should hopefully have that one ready before the end of the first quarter. In the meantime, go download The Last Necromancer on Audible as its sequel, Dreadnought, will probably be done by the time you finish. Writing this story made me start learning to code so that maybe one day I could actually code the Manifest Zeta game application for you guys. Whether I do it or someone else does it, now that it's in the stratosphere, maybe it will somehow exist. Anyway, hope you enjoyed it. Have a wonderful month. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast was written, read, and produced for you by Benjamin Allen. Please give us a good review and subscribe for more stories each month. If you'd like to support us, go purchase one of my audiobooks from Audible, where you can find the donations page on our website. Visit ekpublishingmedia.com for more information. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast is an EK Publishing Media Production 2021.